This is Dylan Wiseman. I'm a shareholder in Buckhalter's San Francisco and Sacramento offices, and I'm also the co-chair of our Trade Secrets and Employment Mobility Practice Group. I've been practicing exclusively in this field for 23 years. This is Sean Casey, and I'm a litigation and transactional attorney with Bookhalter, and have practiced for 24 years in intellectual property law, both as outside and in-house counsel to large and small U.S. and international uh, companies, among others. Jason Goldstein, shareholder of the Irvine Litigation Department. I've been practicing trade secrets for about 15 years and look forward to discussing the issue with all of you. Thanks and welcome. Here we are in Orange County with uh, Jason Goldstein and Sean Casey. And today, uh, episode seven is going to focus in on industries where the customer list is of particular importance. So these are industries like um, insurance brokers, mortgage brokers, brokerages, uh, subscription services, financial services, uh, industries where it takes a lot of time and effort and sweat equity to uh, identify and cultivate the customer relationships. So uh, one of the things I really want to talk about in California is that uh, we all think about trade secrets as being the formula to Coca-Cola. Well, for a long period of time, California has recognized that in certain industries, the customer lists can be protected as a trade secret. And so, uh, Jason, I want you to spend a few moments here telling us about the framework under Labor Code 2860 that provides the kind of the basis for uh, California's position that this information belongs to the employer. Well, in general, uh, this Labor Code section provides that uh, anything that an employee acquires by virtue of their employment belongs to the employer. At face value, people may say, okay, you have a stapler on the desk uh, and that belonged to the employer, so clearly that stays. But then the question becomes, what about items that they learn? What about people they have contact with? Those things under the law, both under the common law of California as well as under the trade secret statute, can become uh, property of the employer and not the employee. There's this general framework under which a company who provides all of the blood, sweat, and tears to turn a universe of potential customers into actual customers should be provided a certain amount of protection for the value they have acquired. Just imagine getting a list of a million different names. You don't know which one buys your product. You hire a team of people to call all those million people and you winnow it down to a very small percentage that actually do. That gives you something valuable. That's something that should be protected. Yeah, it's one of these things where California, because we uh, don't allow for covenants not to compete, you can leave, go to direct competitor the same day. We take a real expansive view about what information um, is owned by and uh, is in the possession of and can, can only be used by the employer. Uh, labor code provisions about the employer owning everything that the employee acquires by virtue of the employment relationship. Mm -hmm. California has developed a whole body of cases around customer lists. And one of the key cases that has uh, been on our books since the late 90s is More Life versus Perry. And Jason, I know that you're pretty well schooled in More Life versus Perry. Yeah, now More Life uh, v. Perry is uh, one of the seminal cases in trade secret law protecting customer lists. And I can still recall a, a case that I had when I obtained a preliminary injunction 
and the Superior Court judge said, more life is my Bible, more life will be your Bible, and that is how your trade secret injunction is going to be drafted. Uh, in more life, there were a bunch of uh, customer names put on a Rolodex uh, at the former employer's office. Uh, there was also information about customers that the uh, employee actually kept you know, in his brain. And when that employer left, he took the Rolodex and he also took the information that was in his brain and he used it to directly compete with the employer. The Court of Appeal in More Life said that's wrong. That information, whether you remembered it, took it, or in either fashion, belongs to the employer and deserves protection. Basically, if you knew or learned of something while you were at your former employer that would qualify as a trade secret, here, the identities of persons that utilize the services you are seeking to sell, that's something that's protected. That's something you can't just use without the former employer's permission. Yeah, More Life really is uh, one of the strongest cases in this field uh, and in the countless injunctions I've gotten over the years involving customerless information, it's in every single brief. It's the, the case that all California uh, has built around and one of the interesting uh, points as well in this area is that when we argue more life, that we argue that well we've got this customerless uh, invariably, the other side tries to say, well, they can't be, that information can't be protected because I could go out and find it if I Googled it. I could go out and find it in trade directories. I could go out and find it in other public sources. And one of the ways I know that I'm dealing with uh, people, lawyers that are really skilled in this field is they never make that argument because uh, under ABBA Rubber versus Sequest, which is another case that's been in our book since the 90s, it doesn't matter if you can find customerless information on the internet. It doesn't matter if you can find it in the trade directories. It doesn't matter if you can find it in the phone book. California protects all that sweat equity and that hard work and effort to go out and make those calls, um, reach out to those customers, go to all those countless um, chamber of commerce meetings to try to develop a book of business. We will protect that information from its misuse from when um, employees leave and solicit. So often what happens in uh, this type of setting in a sales environment, and all sales personnel are universally the same. They all think that they own the relationships. These are my, my people. I developed them. You know, I worked with them for some period of time. They think it's portable. Uh, when the law in California is exactly the opposite. That's the primary asset of the employer. And in fact, getting back to more life, it says that there are plenty of instances where that often is the, the only asset of the employer is the, the book of business that the employee serviced uh, while working for the employer. Um, and so one of the things that we typically look at very early on in these kind of customer solicitation cases are to see if there's been a physical taking of customerless information, uh, particularly engaging in some uh, pretty interesting computer forensics. And I know, Sean, you're, you're well tuned into this, so why don't you give us an update on that? 
Well, thanks, Dylan. And to follow up on what Jason had said earlier, too, I mean, you've got to take reasonable steps to protect that customer list data to ensure that you've got some way to uh, redress uh, a taking of that data later. And so computer forensics can play a big part. Uh, There's a number of software packages out there in the CRM field, computer resource management field, as well as other types of uh, technical software packages that allow you to uh, not only identify and record customer data and customer lists, uh, but but it can also uh, keep track of the uh, continual real-time use of those that customer information and customer list data by salesmen and other employees. And so when it comes to time for an employee to leave and you've got to d- decide whether or not that employee's taken any data, you can then go back in and see what data has he had, had access to, uh, did he t- make a copy of that data? Did he use a thumb drive, etc., cetera, uh, and stuff to figure out whether or not he's actually taken that data. Yeah, when I first started uh, handling these kind of cases a couple decades ago, uh, it started out that people would go old school and take paper documents and take paper lists. And then it became they'd take uh, Outlook contacts. And then it became they'd load files into the cloud. And then it became BitTorrents for a period of time. And then USB devices of all sorts. But fortunately for us, the, uh, the technology that's around computer forensics has vastly improved in the very short period of time. I agree. And I remember my first trade secret case and there was videotapes of people photocopying and walking to the elevator with boxes all night. And and that's just not how it works anymore. Uh, In this electronic age, everything can be gone with the click of a mouse. So you really have to watch a physical slash electronic taking. And one of the coolest programs I've seen is called Spectre. And it takes a photograph of the uh, employee's uh, computer screen like every six seconds and once you detect something you go back and then you pretty much can just nail them so it is pretty great for protecting trade secrets yeah and uh there's a whole industry of course of computer forensic technicians that have grown up with this area of the law and uh, a lot of them are former fbi some of them are former lawyers uh and so it's pretty impressive now to see what can be done as far as getting into a former employee's um, laptop or tablet or whatever it may be, their phone, and figure out what information they may have departed with. Uh, We also see situations where um, there's not really a physical take where uh, the advice that has been given by the employer is typically leave empty-handed, don't take anything, but then they never really do anything to see if they have disclosed information about the customers that they were servicing. So um, that's kind of our our, our second scenario is where there's not really a physical taking, but there um, are uh, the employees leave. They know exactly who the the top customers are. And miraculously, they all are approached within the first week or so after they report for duty. So, uh, Jason, this is very similar, again, to the More Life versus Perry case that you were talking about. Oh, I would agree. Uh, basically, in any trade secret case where there isn't the physical taking, the, the the argument from the other side is they can't just wipe their brains clean. They just can't forget all the stuff they learned. That may be true, but that doesn't mean they can use this information just because they remember it. And when more life's your Bible, it shows that uh, just because it's in your memory doesn't mean it's not a trade secret entitled to protection. Yeah, more life has a really interesting discussion in it. It um 
It talks about this case called Moss Adams that was uh, litigated before California enacted the Uniform Trade Secrets Act. So it's a pre-UTSA case from the early 80s. And under Moss Adams, the law used to be that you couldn't force employees to wipe clean the content of their memories. Uh, More Life goes into a pretty detailed discussion of that and says, look, uh, that might have been the law before 1985, before California enacted the Uniform Trade Secrets Act. But after the enactment of the act, uh, it applies to hard copy records, it applies to electronic files, and it applies to an employee's memory. And so um, I can always tell if I'm dealing with lawyers that don't regularly practice in this area because it's one of the arguments they always make, which is, oh, you can't be expected to wipe clean the content of their memory. Well, the California legislature has said as of about two decades ago, yeah, they can. One of the advantages that a former employee has uh, when they leave and they know who the key customers are is their ability to target and identify them very quickly. And uh, Sean, if you could talk with us a bit about that particular topic. Sure, Dylan. Well, you know, one of the most common sense approaches uh, when an employee leaves is to go out and actively solicit those key customers yourself. I mean, you know who they are and you know that ex-employee's got a probability of going out to target and identify those customers. So the instant that employee leaves, uh, you know, you should be out there trying to protect those trade secrets and maintain that relationship and reach out to those key customers and let them know the account's been reassigned uh, and, and, you know, continue to transfer that relationship to somebody else at the company that remains so that that key employee, if he does reach out, you know, to try and target and identify uh, known customers, you're going to be the first to know about it. And that's going to give you some indicia that there may be a trade secret misappropriation issue uh, because you'll be actively involved with that customer, uh, all those key customers, at the instant any employee leaves. I want to talk a little bit about um, litigation as well in this in this area, Jason. And uh, I'm a firm believer that even if it makes, even if you know the house is burning down, you got to send out a cease and desist letter. And so uh, my take on it is, is that judges really want to see cease and desist letters just as, as some indication that you made an effort to try to get this uh, resolved before without burdening them. And you've dealt with that issue a lot. I agree with you 100%. I always send out a cease and desist, cease and desist letter first, uh, make sure it clearly describes the, what's been misappropriated that we want it returned, we want them to agree to a stop, and therefore give the employee, the former employee, an out, a potential opportunity to avoid the litigation that's coming and the cost that'll be incurred. The court wants to know that you tried to do something before running in, because when you show up ex party, giving the other side only, you know, 24 hours notice, the courts think that's a little unfair. However, if you've been negotiating for a week or two, or at least a few days and they haven't done anything and you're forced to go in, they're much more likely to give you a TRO than they would otherwise because they may say, ah, nothing's really going on now. Just let's set it on normal notice for a preliminary injunction. But when you go in that first time, you need to win and you need to be ready to go. And that cease and desist letter is step one. Yeah, these cases really are a lot about momentum and uh, building momentum. And they tend to burn hot and bright very early on for a short period of time. And so uh, it's always better because judges really do not love these kind of cases. I think that might be the understatement of the week is that, you know, judges realize these cases are hard hitting, fast moving and labor intensive for them. 
and that if you try to resolve things early on with a cease and desist letter and engage in some type of dialogue, and then you're at an impasse before you try to knock on their doorstep to try to get uh, any type of preliminary injunction or temp, uh, moving forward, it's usually the best practice. Lastly, these cases involving customer lists uh, all have uh, a, an element of damages to them. And uh, the damages under California's Uniform Trade Secrets Act, there's three different types. And I think, Jason, you're, you're well equipped to discuss this. Yes, in general, you can get your actual loss or hard damages. There's also unjust enrichment and the reasonable royalty. And depending on the circumstances, you may be able to obtain uh, two out of the three um, in any particular case. Uh, for example, there could be damages to your computer programs that could try and do some sort of virus to cover what they did. That could be a hard cost damage. An unjust enrichment damage could be they actually solicited the customer, they obtained business, and you should be able to get uh, the amount of their profit back to you because they were unjustly enriched in getting it. And the reasonable royalty comes into play when there isn't always a clear-cut measure of damage. For example, let's say you have put together this customer list and you're able to stop them before they use it. However, there is a value to that list and you can get an expert to opine as to what that value would be even if you were just licensing it to them uh, for a while to use it and come up with the damage. And also if it's dealing with a trade secret process or something like that. But you need to show damage, but damage is not critical. If you go in and get a TRO early, that's really what you want. You want to stop this at the get-go. Um, there's case law out there saying that even if your damages are small, that doesn't keep you from being the prevailing party because if you get the injunction and you stop the damage from occurring, you win. And that's his Vaco Industries case, and that's one that basically holds just that, that just because your damages are small doesn't mean you're the, not the prevailing party because you got the relief you wanted. Yeah, I think those are all really good points. And as far as um, damages go, my experience has been that juries really uh, favor unjust enrichment in these kind of cases. Uh, I've tried cases where we tried to characterize our lost profits as uh, and our future lost profits, and it got the jury kind of confused. They really can see and understand, however, well, this was an asset of the business that they took and they used and they exploited, and they uh, they ended up earning all this money from the use of this customer list. So unjust enrichment, I think, is really an important uh, remedy that is available in these kind of cases. With that, I really want to thank you guys, and this has been Episode 7 of the Buckhalter Trade Secrets and Employability Podcast. 